Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chitheads. I'm Jacob Kyle, creator of Five Tatvas, and your host for today's show. My guest today is a rather special guest because she was actually my first yoga teacher when I moved to New York City. Her name is Rima Rabat, and she's a bit of a legend in the New York yoga community. Her classes at Jiva Mukti Yoga are always packed, and not surprisingly at all, because Rima has a beautiful quality to her teaching. Her presence is very nurturing and open-hearted. She also has this incredible skill of being able to memorize everyone's name. She even can memorize those names often before a student will land in her class, even for a third time. And she's, you know, just one of those yoga teachers who you really feel is striving to embody the principles of the tradition in her daily life. I got to talk to Rima about the story of her practice, her ideas of karma and emptiness, and also the virtue of samadarshana, which is the ability to see the sameness in all beings. And we also spoke a little bit about the Middle East and what her thoughts are about the role of the yogi in global politics. Our conversation was so rich and open and interesting, and I really hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed recording it. So here you go, friends, Rima Rabat of Jiva Mukti Yoga in New York City. Hi, Rima. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jacob. So it's a really special opportunity to be able to interview today because, and I don't know if you know this, but when I moved to New York, you were actually my very first yoga teacher here. I had been uh, living in the UK and I had encountered Jiva Mukti there. And, and that was really the first studio where I uh, where I really started practicing like daily. And so when I moved here, it was obvious that I was going to go straight to Jiva Mukti, and you were the first teacher that I, that I connected with. So it's really special to be able to interview to you today. Oh, that's wonderful. I had no idea. Yeah. What a surprise. Yeah, thank you so but much. But I remember you actually um, quite vividly. I mean, I can't remember exactly when you first came. It mm-hmm. was a few years back. How, how long have you been here? I've been here since 2010. Okay, so about five years. Yeah. But I totally remember you. Yeah, you were a really special teacher to me. Thank you. And actually, one of the reasons why you were such a special teacher and, and something that I actually would love for you to kind of talk about and sort of maybe give us a, a, a lens into how you built this incredible skill, which is your ability to memorize names. Because I remember it was really only a few classes into my time with you that you knew my name, you referred to to me by name, and not only me, but also you referred to almost every person in your class. And sometimes this was upwards of, you know, 60 people. Your classes are so large. You knew all of these people by name. And it's such a lovely aspect of your teaching. So I'm kind of wondering, is this a, a natural skill or did you cultivate that? It's, a, it's an interesting question that I get asked a lot. Um, I mean, I, I, I can say that it was, it's a probably, probably a natural skill that um, I became aware of when I started teaching yoga. I, I do think um, having a name is very special. Um, you know, when you sing um, kirtan style, call and response, and you sing the nam, the name, um, it is said that those names, those precious names like Krishna or Shiva or Durga, uh, they contain all names. And I do believe that uh, our names are contained in those, you might say, larger names. And so asking someone their name, I think, is very precious. It's been given to them or they have chosen that name, that name uh, later in life. And uh, it creates an intimate connection. Now, the trick, because I'm often asked, like, what's the trick? I find that the trick, I mean, there's no really any trick, but the trick for me or what works, for uh, what helps me remember a name 
is being very fully present when someone is giving me their name or sharing their name with me. Often, yes, listening, listening. Yoga begins with listening. And I, um, and I know, I've noticed that when I do, I'm not present, someone could tell, me, could tell me their name and a few minutes later, I totally forgot. And so the idea of being present is just um, such a beautiful way of living our lives. And so if I am able to be present when someone's sharing their name with me, then I can... Um, extended in the future and I think that there's a very intimate relationship between name um, and uh, form or sound and form and how the two become one and so when I'm when I remember somebody's name when I see them the sound of their name sorts of uh, immediately occurs to me because I've seen their form and vice versa so I think it's a very profound teaching, the idea of uh, the world or matter being energy or sound. And I think uh, we can start appreciating that the moment somebody gives them gives us their name. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I don't think I've ever heard anyone compare learning someone's name to chanting the names of the divine in kirtan. And really what I hear you saying is that there is something about honoring the divine in each person that is what you're doing when you're really staying present to hear someone's name. Absolutely. It's the same way as namaste in a way, which is a way of honoring the divine in someone else. And just by listening to their name, you're honoring that in them. Definitely. Cool. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about or hear about the story of your practice. So, you know, when did you walk into your first yoga class? When did you start teaching? And really just the overall arc of your yoga journey. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you for asking. Uh, I started practicing in the summer of 2000. Uh, I came to New York City um, in 1995 to pursue my MBA with uh, the Stern School of Business at NYU. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm totally a business person. And I, um, I studied econom- economics as an undergrad, uh, undergrad and math. And then... Uh, <laughs> And then I, 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 came to, I came to New York City for, for, for my studies, my, my graduate studies. And I, uh, right after my MBA, I started working at Colgate-Palmolive in brand management. And, um, and in 2000, it's kind of a cool story. In 2000, um, at the beginning of 2000, a colleague at Colgate uh, actually mentioned uh, Jiva Mukti Yoga. At the time, they had business cards, and they left uh, the business card on my desk. And... Uh, I assumed that yoga wasn't really something that I would be into because mm-hmm. we all have you know, very fixed and almost frozen ideas uh, about things. Sure. And I used to play tennis competitively as a, as, a, as a teenager. And so I was more on the athletic side, but I hadn't done much since then because it's hard to actually find uh, tennis players you can play with in New York City because of the weather. And, right. and so, um, and finally in the summer of 2000, I walked uh, by sort of you know, spontaneously into the doors of Jiva Mukti at the time. It was on Lafayette Street. Right. And uh, I, I, it was a 6.15 uh, open class on a Monday night, and I walked into Ruth's class. Um, oh, wow. Commonly known as Lady Ruth. And, uh, yeah, wow. Which she still teaches at Yeah, she time. teaches there. That's 6.15 <laughs> still. It's, it's kind of a it's very amazing. landmark spot. And um, my best friend and I were both into business. We walked in together. Monica Jaggi, she's actually a, a fantastic, incredible teacher mm-hmm. at Jiva Mukti. And, um, you know, I walked into the class and uh, it was overwhelming and it was uh, hard and it was intense, but it was very sweet at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there was, um, 
You know the, you know, the idea that a fierceness could be soft yeah. and softness could be fierce. And Ruth often says, um, soft on the outside, strong on the inside, mm. which I think is a beautiful quality of the yogi. Yeah. Like, and they can be very, very strong, and, but also very approachable. Yeah, no sure. one is intimidated by them. And so there was this aspect of the class and of the teacher that totally um, appealed to me. And even though I couldn't, you know, do much, uh, you know, I, uh, I felt very weak, actually. I, a seed was planted in me. I, mm. I started practicing uh, basic classes once a week. And you know how it goes. Um, you start once a week, then twice a week, then yeah. so on and so forth. Every and then day. You, yeah, every day. And then that's why it's a lifetime practice. And it's also, you know, I started going on retreats whenever I had time off, um, And um, in 2005, um, I was able to take five weeks off paid vacation oh from goodness. Colgate because I had been there for a while. And um, the perks of a corporate yeah, job. Yeah, the perks of a corporate job. So I went. I took my Jivamukti teacher training, being pay, making six digits <laughs> a salary, and um, and being paid while I was gone for five weeks. Wow. And so uh, I took my teacher training in May. And at the time, I wasn't sure if I was going to teach. It just was a way for me to, uh, you know, study with my teachers, teachers Sharon Gannon and David Life, and uh, deepen my practice. And the philosophical aspects of the practice were also appealing to me. And I, I thought that if I immerse myself for a whole month, I will uh, gain more knowledge. Um, mm. uh, and so I took my teacher training in May, and I left. What year was this? 2005. Okay. I left my corporate job in September of 2005, still not knowing what I was going to do. I was going to do some uh, brand management consulting on the side, mm. but I started, uh, I did my apprenticeship with Ruth, which is a 500-hour program after the 300-hour teacher training. Mm. So you get, you become 800-hour certified. Wow. And um, while I was working, I started in summer of 2005, and then, uh, and then when I left my job, I really left Colgate with open doors, as they say. Um, you know, it was just, I, I loved what I did. I just wanted to explore something else, yeah. which really is, you know, is God-given. It's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing because, um, you know, Osho, the great Osho, often mm. says that uh, how we end something, that seed is carried into the next thing that we do. Right. And so if we're able to end something on a, I would say, uh, a note that is... Um, pleasant or precious then that seed will be carried in the, to the next thing so and that actually helped me in my uh, moving into the teaching uh, my, my teaching aspect of my life um, mm. through yoga so I started teaching full time at Jiva Mukti in the February 2006 and I've been teaching there since then and in fact I still have the same slots and classes that I had when I first started teaching of course I didn't have seven classes on the schedule when I first started right. but uh That's a testament to how much you're appreciated at that studio. Yes, the studio, it's really also, it's, you know, I think yoga is so popular and, mm. um, you know, I, I, I always say that if, you know, if you live in New York and you, you're a practitioner of yoga and you don't have a job and you have enough money to practice yoga every day, you could practice with great teachers everywhere, you know, in, in different places every single day. You could take three classes a day with three different teachers And, and, you know, have an incredible cosmic experience. Yeah. So, but, you know, there's a, you know, we foster, I think most yoga schools do that, but uh, 
it's like the, the, the fostering of that very precious relationship between teacher and student is um, something that allowed me, that has encouraged me and allowed me to really stick to the method and to the student body and to the, my teachers, of course. Yeah, and well, one thing I really appreciate about Jiva Mukti is that they've really stayed true to the teachings. I mean, they're probably one of the only studios in New York City that really emphasizes the ancient texts, the Yoga Sutras, etc. And and that seems to be a practice that it's being kind of left out in this new, very fitness-oriented yoga that we're seeing. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you have any comments on that, sort of observations? Do you think that uh, this is a negative outcome that we're seeing, more yoga that is um, kind of shirking the philosophical heritage? I think it's a great question. I mean, when you think about uh, Master Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and the eight-limb path or Ashtanga Yoga not as a method, but as an eight-limb path or step, eight-step eight path, um, you know, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there are eight limbs, eight practices, um, but they are, they're all equally important. I mean, there's a sequence in the way you sing that verse and in the way Master Patanjali has laid it out for us, but they are, uh, there's no real order. And so I think... I'm hoping that eventually if one goes deep into one limb, the interest and curiosity about the other limbs will naturally arise. And so, you know, the, the approach at Jiva Mukti is let's focus on more than just one limb right from the, off the bat. Um, you know, I can't, you know, as long as the, I mean, I would say that if one really practices yoga asana as it has been uh, offered to us from the olden days. Um, you know, asana means seat, and that's a very particular translation that Sharon Gannon and David Life have offered about the word asana, not merely expressing pose or position, but a seat or a connection to the earth. That sense of connection that one gains through the practice, through breathing, um, will um, sort of uh, lead the practitioner to become curious about the yamas and the niyamas, about how they eat, what they eat, how they relate to others, how they can go inwards, how they can be still, how they can focus. Um, so I don't want to look at it as a negative thing. I just want to look at it as perhaps um, just an entry point for many people, hoping right. that they'll move on to the other limbs or aspects of this eight-limb path. Yeah, I, I'm actually really glad that you said that because in my own history with the practice, it was definitely that. I mean, I, I walked into a yoga class in a gym and it was all about the next physical buzz, you know, because I had been a gym rat for, for several years and yoga was just something that was hard for me. It was very hard, very intense because I was so tight. My body physically was so tight, but I left feeling this like profound you know, bliss, that, you know, the, the yoga buzz that people often talk about. And I think that you're right, that it's just, just by being associated with yoga and all of the other things that were happening around that in the community, in the wider community, you just start to become influenced and your subtle body starts to shift and, and you become more open. You know, I was a very 
especially when I started, I was very politically angry, so I had a very hard shell. And and yoga really softened that a lot. And and I think that that you're totally right that that in this culture, in Western culture, we're very physical. We're very phys- we're, It's a very physical culture. And and yeah, if it works, it's upaya, it's skillful means. If it works, if it gets people's foot in the door, uh, then hopefully you know they'll encounter other practices that are a bit more subtle. Yeah, and then there's this. Uh, I mean, then look at you now, five tadvas and uh, uh, awesome practice and. You know, a deep and um, a very uh, enthusiastic and curious understanding uh, of these teachings. What I would love to hear about is your daily sadhana now. What okay. does your practice look like today? Um, well, I practice as I, I try to practice every single day. Mm-hmm. I um, where there's a few things that I do from an asana perspective. I practice Ashtanga Yoga a couple of times a week okay. with Eddie Stern. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and I've been uh, practicing with him since um, I would say the end of 2007, and I started because uh, I was it was my my first trip in Mysore. For uh, Mysore was in January 2008, and uh, I've gone there four or five times since then. And now I also go to I practice with Rolf and Marcy, who are these amazing Ashtanga Yoga teachers uh, in Goa on Juna Beach. Um, yeah, and they're like just so generous in there with their time and their assists and their knowledge. And uh, so I started practicing with Eddie at the end of 2007. And it's, it was good for me, one, because of the structure and the discipline, two, also walk into a studio where I wasn't, te- where I wasn't teaching. So mm. uh, I could really be a student, an almost anonymous student, but mm. not anymore because, you know, the yoga world is so small. But I enjoy the, the idea. And, and it's, the, it's the basis of the Jiva Mukti method, Ashtanga Yoga, Sri K. Patabi Joyce Guruji is one of the three gurus of, um, in the Jiva Mukti lineage. So I also practice, of course, Jiva Mukti Yoga, uh, which, I te- what, which I teach. And so I take a lot of classes at Jiva Mukti with different teachers. I also practice on my own. When I want to uh, teach a sequence, um, it's, I, would, I would recommend practicing what we teach. So we've embodied it, and then it comes out, f- comes out of us very naturally. Um, so I do practice asana almost every day. I would say, I would say six times a week. I, um, I try to meditate every single day. Um, there's a few days where you know, I'm skipping it, but I can also, you too, yeah. And, it's just, and I beat myself up, which is kind of... Um, it's kind of the game or the, the, the not the game, with the game or the, the hallmark of our human uh, existence to, you know, either beat ourselves up or blame others for something. And so we're constantly ping-ponging between these two things. Like we can, when I say others, it could be time. Oh, I don't have enough time to meditate. Or I blame myself if I didn't meditate. But I do feel like, like what, what we say, and it might, may sound cliche, but setting the tone for your day by sitting still in front of an altar, ideally, or whatever represents um, uh, something special to you, like a spot or a space that is clean, that is uh, uncluttered, that is uh, representative of your highest heart desires. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, I, I sing also on my harmonium because as part of the method, uh, Jiva Mukti method, we also, you know, chant. Yeah. 
which I I, I love chanting. Thank you. <laughs> I love chanting, and it's you know I was always self-conscious because I have such a low voice, mm -hmm. and of course there are certain chants that I can't, you know, imagine myself singing because the notes are so high, but um, you know being able to play with an instrument every day I was never a musician even if I'm not a musician is just um, hearing our voice and how the sound of our voice changes through practice, which is said to be one of the signs that someone is steeped on their path. It's like the tone and the sound of their voice will change. Mm. And, um, That's so interesting. And what you said earlier about being politically angry, I think you know, often anger comes out through the, the way we speak or the tone of our voice. Sure. And I have that too. Like I, 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 I grew up with you know a lot of political anger, which is interesting, mm -hmm. um, in me. And I and I could see how the tone of my voice has changed over the years. It doesn't mean that I don't flip out or on somebody, <laughs> but I can't. I mean, I still do that. But I, you know, this this there's a softness and the sweetness that um, that uh, is a natural progression of singing mm -hmm. and. Yeah, and uh, I think also on that for me, you know, definitely anger gets stirred up, and and I have these moments where you know I I perhaps react in a way that I'm not totally happy with, uh, but what I think what the practice has allowed for is uh, there's this lag time now between when I you know flip out and and when I'm able to recognize so you know, there's less uh, uh, time. It's not it doesn't stay with me as long as perhaps it used to. And as long as we can let go of this idea that we have to be purified of uh, anger in some kind of, you know, puritanical way, then it's really about, you know, shifting our relationship with those things that we perceive to be, uh, quote unquote, negative. It's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. And I think anger is energy. And uh, the Buddhists uh, say that the wisdom aspect of anger is clarity. And so if you're able not to act upon it or that lag time you're talking about is uh, shorter, uh, we're able to convert that energy into something that is... Um, less divisive. Less decisive. And, and, and um, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King is a perfect example of, it, uh, right. of, of that, like turning his anger into something that has benefited the world. And so what, I, and what you said about, um, which I loved... You know, it's all about our relationship to things, mm -hmm. to qualities, to people, to ourselves. And how we relate to something is really what is uh, impacting our experience. Yeah. And, um, you know, relationship is, is the motto of our lives. Like we're in constantly in relationship. Even when you're alone, you're in relationship with our thoughts. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, um, yeah. And if we can almost think about our thoughts as people, you know, and, and just have compassion for our thoughts, as, kind of as you would a friend, even when those thoughts maybe don't smack you as, as the most lovely thoughts. Yeah, emb embracing the demons, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, and, you know, thoughts are matter, you know, thoughts are energy, the, the basis thoughts are energy that were transformed into very fixed ideas about ourselves, about the world, about others. So relating yeah, to them... literally shape our bodies. Yes. And literally, and what you said, relating to them as people or as, you know, others is just, it's, it's really brilliant. Well, thank you. So on that topic a little bit, uh, and I think we're kind of segueing nicely into this, one thing that I've observed about your class that I really love is um, 
and you know my my observation of dharma talks is is that they're a delicate thing right so uh, jiva mukti teachers seem to do them in general quite beautifully but sometimes there will be a dharma talk and and maybe it's because i'm a more you know i've been socialized to be a little more skeptical but there's times when I'll be listening to a Dharma talk and I'm a little bit on edge, you know, because maybe the teachings are, are being dumbed down a bit or or there's kind of a preachy quality to the Dharma talk or, you know, or I just don't feel like it's coming from an authentic place for the teacher. But with you, you know, I love to hear what you have to say. I'm never uncomfortable when you start to talk about your class because you really speak from this very honest, open-hearted place about your experience. And it shows that you're really... And even in this conversation that we're having right now, I can see how embodied this is for you. So I would just love to hear, you know, maybe a few examples and you can launch into a Dharma talk if you feel like it. Uh, but a few stories from your life where you saw the yoga teachings reflected in your experience. Okay. <laughs> well, a few things I, I have to say that, um, you know, it's a two-way relationship um, and the students who have come to my classes have allowed me, invited me really, to remain open and approachable and unguarded and to realize the, um, the strength that comes out of exposing yourself um, without, uninhibitedly really and unapologetically. And um, we spoke about relating to things and to others earlier and you know, it's how we relate to one another's and uh, to one another, and um, you know, people see themselves in you, and I see myself in in others. And the biggest teaching of yoga, I think, is self imply implies others. And um, if we can reach that point of um, samadarshana in Sanskrit, sama is same, drish means to see, mm -hmm. so same seeing, or doesn't mean that the world is going to look bland and not versatile and not colorful and not varied and not beautiful and filled with different species and um, wardrobes and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But the idea of Samadarshana is like something of the same mm. in others. And if you can see that when someone can really relate to you, everybody, everybody is suffering. Everybody has had moments of self-consciousness. Everybody has had a moment where they felt like a failure. Everybody has had a moment where they felt on top of the world. Everyone has had yeah. a moment where they were total bliss and happy. All of these, like this bandwidth of emotions we've all experienced. And so um, to go back, like my, my, the students have in, invited me to actually touch upon all these things uh, in a way that is not uh, prohibited or, um, or, or I'm conscious about. So to, re to answer your question about uh, the teachings of yoga, so I was speaking about Samadarshana, and one, uh, one story I think that has sort of shaped uh, my life is political. So I'm, 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 I'm going to say that now. It's political, but I was, um, I was, I was nine years old, I believe, and uh, nine or ten, um, and um, I was living in Beirut. I grew up in Beirut, and I left when I was 16, to go to uh, undergrad uh, school in Paris. Uh, and that's another story which I won't get into how I got there. But um, the Israeli army had um, invaded um, Lebanon in that, that summer. And um, the tanks were literally on the sidewalks. 
and it was June, and it was hot, and, you know, we didn't have power, and um, there was nowhere to go. And so you remained as a child in your neighborhood, and we often played on the streets, soccer, and... Uh, and I remember those Israeli soldiers were there in their tanks, and um, my grandmother at the time, or the nanny, I can't remember exactly, but someone in my household said, why don't you get them watermelon? It's so hot out there. So I carried a huge cut-out watermelon, which was bigger than me, and I walked across the street to the sidewalk where the Israeli soldiers were, and I offered them watermelon. And, you know, I only actually came to this realization way later. You know, I was, I was a kid at the time. But they, they, really, they, they really appreciated the watermelon. It was really, really hot out there. But I could see in that moment the fear in their eyes. You know, they were 17 years old. They didn't want to die in a foreign land. They were probably drafted or even by choice, whatever that was. You know, they, was, they were as afraid as we were. I was a nine-year-old. They were 17. And we had the same fear. Fear of death, really. Uh, and uh, fear of losing your loved ones. Fear of you losing your body. Fear of losing everything you have. And, you know, it was just a very defining moment in my life where I was able to have that exchange between self and other experience directly and I couldn't really put a word on it at the time and of course I had a crush on one of those soldiers his name was Danny and he wrote my name on his military pant I remember it was really sweet but this idea that what my country and adults labeled as enemy even though I was asked to offer them watermelon um was really just I realized later on that how we have uh, uh, the, the power of prejudice, um, the power of fixed thoughts and ideas, and how, as you said earlier, they shape our bodies. And I also realized that uh, the power of connection through suffering, which I think is like the basis of the Buddha's um, um, decision to walk out of the palace as Siddhartha. Um, but, um, you know, it's like when we have a broken, ha broken heart or when we suffer, we're really all the same, fully naked in a way. And so this idea of Samadarshana, I had a very glimpse of an, ex I had this glimpse of an, of an experience at the age of nine, ten, but it stayed with me. And, of course, I wish I could have Samadarshana all the time. But I'm not there, and uh, I don't know if I'll ever be there in this lifetime. But the idea that that moment was really totally affected me. And, and, um, and it's just like I, I cherish this moment, <laughs> Tira, but I cherish this moment so much uh, because it helped me. It helped me tremendously. How old were you? Nine or ten. Yeah. So you had those wisdom seeds early. I mean... I don't know. I, at the time, I just didn't... I mean, this is a teaching that really came to me much later. But that moment was a total landmark in my, uh, in my upbringing. 
I think that's such a beautiful and powerful story, and uh, Samadarshan seems to be such an important teaching, especially in Western culture, because really, uh, at least from my perspective, it seems like we're socialized to you know, look at ourselves as different from other people. I mean, our culture is really about a culture of difference and defining yourself in contrast to others so you can stand out. And, you know, we're always trying to look for qualities that, that make us special. Not that we're not special, but, I mean, that's really the kind of cultural value system. To, so to have a kind of virtue or teaching like Samadarshan seems so appropriate for us who are kind of surrounded all the time by this cultural compulsion to just see difference around us rather than also sameness. And it's not to, it's not to say that differences are bad, but it's um, if... if as it's just one layer. Yeah, one layer, exactly. And as long as you're totally, we are totally, we can totally remain connected to, I guess, the bottom of the ocean or the ocean, then the waves can like go as high as 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 they're you're capable they're capable of but just remaining connected to that ground uh, wide open space of beingness as Pema children would always says so yes uh, um, another story I mean another uh, other teachings that have really marked me are uh, the teachings on karma and um Karma is often loosely used, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there are many just competing problematic yeah. interpretations. And it's karma. The way I've been taught is, of course, it's action, but it's also the laws of cause and effect. But it's really a principle uh, at work that um, is there for us to check in with ourselves and uh, understand uh, how we relate to things and why we relate to things differently from others. And um, the first law of karma is, or quality or aspect of karma is, um, karma is certain. Or this idea that, as you've, you know probably very well, is that um, you can't plant a watermelon seed and expect you know, a lemon tree. And so, that, I think, aspect of karma is so empowering mm. because it's like, really, there are no surprises, yeah. which doesn't take away the wonder and the unexpected aspects of life, but the idea that there's a cause is, is really, I think, very empowering. And the way I've experienced this certainty of karma is the karma, as one of my teachers um, calls it karma of neglect and so you know we all and I am I'm a pro at you know suppressing or having suppressed certain feelings as a child or at, in certain, at certain times in my life where thinking that by um, pushing the feeling into a bottom drawer or not dealing with it you know, it's, it's, I, I'm going to be, and I'm just going to come out of it, and I'm going to be strong, and, you know. And so the idea of karma of neglect is that you're suppressing or even denying yourself a certain experience, a feeling, like you're hoping that uh, the circumstance in your life is going to go away by not dealing with it, uh, will uh, have consequences uh, later on in life where... Um, me neglecting certain feelings or of, of who I was as at that age, at certain age 
is gonna cause me to uh, experience life in a certain way la- later on. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny because I always say I have abandon- abandonment issues. And so it's, you know, not dealing with my abandonment issues when I was uh, younger has caused me to really freak out when um, someone leaves me or um, whether physic- what, what someone leaves their body or someone leaves me. And so it's, it's that, that aspect of karma is, um, has really touched me personally. And um, the second law of karma, there are four, but I'll go through first. The second is that the karma expands. And so one small thing, one way of, if we react to something habitually, the more we react to it in that same way, the bigger the, the effect. And, um, and so that other, that the other teaching has really impacted me, like karma and uh, the way um, I experience my reality right now. It has something to do with how I related to certain experiences in the past. Mm. And so I think uh, what's incredible about yoga is like just the aspect of watching or the instruction of watching your breath on your yoga mat is an act of observation that can allow you to observe the way I'm, you're meeting your current experiences in life right now. And that will tell you a lot about how you dealt with things in the past and will give you the opportunity and the power to redirect your future. I mean, I tell myself good luck, but <laughs> at least it's imprinted in me. Yeah. 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 So, it's, and a challenging, it's a challenging practice. And, you know, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit. You mentioned how, or we mentioned how karma has been... Um, somewhat misinterpreted, at least in relation to how we like to think about it. And one of the ways that I feel like that's being done is this kind of teaching of karma as punitive, as kind of a punishment. You know, that's karmic payback. You know, you hear things like this. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could just kind of clarify what's the difference between this approach that you're talking about and that approach? I mean, first of all, who are we to judge? Mm-hmm. No, and even when it comes to ourselves, like beating ourselves up, oh, I must have done something, you know, bad in the past to deserve this in the current, my current experience, is really not the way to go. Because not only karma, I mean, karma is certain and it's expensive, but it's not linear and it's not instant. Right. And it's much more complex than, oh, I did A and I'm going to get B. Right. And so I think... Um, it's, it's really a, a consideration more than a, an, a punitive statement. Mm-hmm. Um, can I consider how, how my thoughts and my reactions have something small to do with the world that I'm experiencing right now? So uh, maybe it's not 100%, but it has something small and... It's, I think it's instead of being punitive, it's, it's uh, shifting that to um, a more softer, tender approach towards mm-hmm. yourself. Like, oh, I blew it up at some point, maybe, but can I be compassionate towards myself for having blown it up or someone else having blown it up? If, at, rather than um, really, oh, you, you deserve this and, you know, you're going to like experience, you're going to go to hell Rather than, I think it's, it's just, uh, 
it's really an awakening to the complexity of our human nature and how we all fuck up sometimes and we all like fall in love with others and we 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 do the best we can and you know we're complex it's not mm-hmm. um and i think when we can approach ourselves and others with more tenderness and affection and a broader view of the complexity of what it's like to be human then um you just relax a little bit mm-hmm. rather yeah. than pointing fingers and uh being punitive yeah yeah it's sort of uh, one thing you said about um what you know small contribution uh you're making to kind of the state of things it made me think about um there's this one uh, he's a western academic his name is Slavoj Žižek and he uh and he mentions how several different ways he talks about how you know the king is only a king because the people recognize him as king you know if if all of a sudden one day everyone decided the king wasn't the king i mean there would be no empire you know so there's this way in which every day we're making a small decision just by just by you know um just by uh responding to the world in the same way that we've been socialized to respond we're co-creating that larger experience you know and and so the question becomes you know what small things can we start to do every every day to create a sea change because it really does oftentimes it can start with just that small you know trickle of an influence coming from one person that can make such a dramatic change and that to me seems like you know uh a beautiful way to look at at karma is you know even when you're in an asana class as you said you know you don't plant a watermelon seed and expect to get an apple tree and when you're moving through asanas and you're cultivating space in the body you you're really you're creating the foundation for a particular experience and so it's it's you know it's scientific really it's cause and effect it's absolutely and it's the idea of imprints is um so potent here it's every like you said like every time you create space you're creating the foundation or uh laying the foundation for a certain experience and it's uh it's 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 that idea of uh you're watering that seed so it can grow so we, there are certain seeds we can water and other seeds that we can water and what kind of seed are we choosing and the idea of seed like everybody can visualize a seed it's very 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 small mm. and so there's a very humbling aspect to this i think that it's small that you don't have to do you know something huge in order to uh change yeah. yourself or the way you perceive mm-hmm. others revolutionary actions can be very small yeah. yeah i mean wars can be started with one idea or thought mm-hmm. and peace as well yeah yeah so beautiful yeah, yeah. so um i wanted to ask you about the what has been your biggest challenge on your yoga path on your spiritual path it's a good question um well um for a while i um i thought that you know being a yogi if that's anything but that that too is a label right yeah. that suggests something fixed and frozen mm-hmm. and not fluid mm-hmm. and not subject to change right but i i always you know that i ha- that i had to lead a certain lifestyle um that you know every thought like you said earlier has to be pure uh, that uh which it was a way denying my humanness yeah 
And I think as the more I practiced and um, the more I've been, in, the more I've studied these teachings, and really also the power of satsang. When I say satsang, it doesn't have to be sitting in a room and singing kirtan. Mm-hmm. But um, which is great. Yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> I love it. But uh, the idea of um, you know sitting, sitting, sad to sit, sadhana, uh, sitting with the material, this rich material that is um, our life, uh, uh, this rich yogic material, um, I learned that I don't have, that there are not uh, these, my, my, my huma- humanness and my aspiration to, um, for, you know, awakening um, are not, mutually exclusive but mm-hmm. they can coexist really nicely and um i you know we're in the world like we're in the world and i love the world mm-hmm. me too <laughs> i love the world and there is you know nothing wrong with the world um um really i mean in the end it's really what's wrong is in our thoughts, right, mm-hmm. often. But the idea of my biggest challenge has, at first was to um, kind of, um, it was to, um, I was differentiating the two paths, like my life and my yogic life. And, um, and then I, but then eventually I realized that they can, as I mentioned, like work in tandem. And um, I, you know, I could be practicing on my mat, but doesn't mean I can't go out and party I, I i cannot not have coffee uh yeah right i mean i i'm, I'm known to love coffee uh yeah you know as long as i understand what i'm doing what i'm doing it um i have to say that becoming a vegetarian wasn't the big i thought would be a big challenge for me um but um in fact, it was just to go back to our earlier conversation. How you know, one aspect of the eight li- of the eight limb path can affect other aspects is you know becoming vegetarian was really a natural progression of my practice. So to answer your question, like the challenge that I first found or um, came across on my on my journey um, has sort of have softened. I'm sure there are other challenges that I'm facing. Every day, like one challenge is my impulses, you know, it's like habitual reactivity. I see myself reacting habitually to certain things. And you spoke about gap and lack time earlier. And um, if I can catch myself, the sooner I catch myself, um, that alone is a huge achievement on, on the journey. Yeah, it's the fruit of the practice. So the idea of even catching myself, I'm not even saying, okay, I'm never going to go there, but catching myself with awareness um, and recognizing and accepting and embracing these parts of myself that are impulsive and reactive and um, and so very human. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you're human too. <laughs> uh, please. Okay, so I want to go ahead and shift gears just a little bit and talk to you about the Middle East. And I have a few different questions about that because... You know, as you mentioned uh, before the interview, you grew up in Beirut, you're from Lebanon. And we had talked before we started recording about how, you know, you weren't raised in a Muslim household. 
it was a re- it was a relatively secular household, in fact. But you know, you did have a, a stepdad who was Muslim. Obviously, you were surrounded by by Islam. So I I'm kind of interested, and this is based on a recent experience that I had. I'm interested in hearing what your thoughts are on the conflict between, if you see one, Islam and yoga philosophy. And I asked this question because I was in a taxi cab the other day with a really lovely Muslim cab driver, and we got on this topic of Islam versus India. And I don't know how this topic came up, but he was talking about how silly and weird the Indians were. Uh, you know, he mentioned that uh, Indians drink cow urine, but uh, but he mentioned, you know, how silly it was that Indians see God in everything. And of course, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, that's really beautiful. I'm down with that idea. But of course, to him, it was kind of an outrageous notion. And, uh, and you know, we know that Islam and Christianity share, of course, this idea that God is a separate thing. It has a form. It's transcendent. And, you know, uh, we're the sinners down here. But uh, so... This experience kind of begged the question after I had it of, is there a constitutive conflict? You know, is there a fundamental conflict between Islam and yoga philosophy? Or could there be, um, you know, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, an Islamic yoga? Um, <laughs> it's a loaded question. Love loaded questions. I mean, I haven't read the Quran, so I can't you know, speak intelligently about the text, per se, but a few things that come to mind. One, uh, because of our, our tendency as humans to interpret things, we interpret a holy text in a way that benefits us, and so the words of wisdom and of love and of compassion, I'm sure, and of in all things and all beings, I, I'm not sure, I can't say for sure, but I have a hunch, are embedded in that particular Islamic text. But then it's been interpreted in a way that is, has moved away from the essential teachings of the prophet. And so... Yes, I think Islam and Christianity have God in form, but even, and again, I haven't read the Bible or the Old Testament or the New Testament, so I can't even speak intelligently about those texts either. But I, I, I also think that these wisdom texts, if you really read them without subjectivity, superimposed above them, also have that teaching of God or love, compassion, being in all things and in everything and in all beings. So that's kind of the premise of mm, the way I'd like to view these religions. Um, But then if those texts are interpreted differently, like the Quran and Islam is now like God should look one way and if you're not Muslim, you're heretic, or you know you're not a children, a child of God, etc. Um, yes, that when you view that text and that religion in that way, it will take you away from yoga philosophy because it'll be very different and uh, not the two could not coexist. But again, that doesn't see like a lot. Obviously, a lot of Muslims practice yoga, and my hope is that these students and teachers would, um, would, would lead 
by example. And like you said earlier, it takes one thing, one seed. And so, uh, again, it's all about, you know, fixated ideas versus that vast open field of possibility. Um, I know that in Lebanon, you know, it's, as I mentioned, it's, you know, it's mostly secular, I would say. And there are a lot of mixed marriages. And, um, you know, it's when you take a yoga class in Beirut, I bet that it's a 50-50 percentage of people like between Muslims and Christians taking class. And will there be, will yoga philosophy tend to be shared in class? Yes. In fact, in fact, I am teaching on October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th with an amazing Jivamukti teacher, Yogeshwari. Uh, we're teaching a Jivamukti immersion, which is a two, it's, it's a weekend immersion retreat in Beirut. We have, yeah, we have 40 people signed up. We're, I mean, I have, there are five people coming from New York City. Five of my students are traveling all the way to Beirut. And I've recommended that they take a few days in between so they could explore the country. And the situation in that part of the world is not at the time, it's, it's not, it's a bit iffy right now, but still these students and people and friends have, are come, you know, are coming down. I'm, I'm flying out on the 30th of September. And so, yeah, yoga is quite popular in Lebanon. And, um, and again, it's a start. So, um, but again, and the other thing that I would like to say, I think uh, you've inspired me to remember that, is um, that yoga is not a religion. Yoga is not a religion, and we have that concept of Ishwara. Um, Vara is to choose, and um, Ish is Lord, or... So you can choose who you devote yourself to. Uh, In the Yoga Sutra, Master Patanjali gives us that uh, choice. Like, you can choose who you devote yourself to. it It could be Muhammad, it could be... Jesus, it could be Shiva, it could be Krishna, it could be um, Moses, it could be any, any, any being that is going to up, uplift you. You can choose to devote yourself to, and that will be an act of devotion. So what you're saying is that Ishvara, Ishvara really is a, a placeholder for the object of devotion. Exactly, exactly. It's a placeholder. Yeah, I, I love this because I actually struggle with with Ishvara and um, actually my partner and I often have disagreements about this and his interpretation or the translation that he often shares is uh, Ishvara is the supreme controller which is a translation that's that's found in, in many places but I really like this more kind of etymological translation that you're offering of of Vada is is to choose and and uh, Ish, is, Ish is lord or master so the idea, I mean, that's, I mean, and that's the beauty I, th- I find of sans- Sanskrit. Like for me, it's like math. Like you have to break down a word. And when you break, it's such a rich language. And when you break down the word, you have uh, deeper insights on what that word means and how it is placed in context. And, um, and you can do that with every single Sanskrit word. And you will find that a lot of these words are the root of all Indo-European languages. And, um, and the way uh, my teacher, Sharon Gannon, translates this particular verse, which is in verse 23 in the first chapter of the Samadhipada of the Yoga Sutra, is by giving your life and identity to God, you will obtain or gain the identity of God. But 
I loved what you said about placeholder because it's exactly what Ishwara means. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm so on board with that translation. Awesome. Awesome. Another question I wanted to ask you about, and, and this comes from my own observation of the yoga community, uh, and I'm going to mention Syria, but of course I'm really kind of referring to uh, these more global crises you know, in general where devastating violence is happening. And what I see and, and what we talked about uh, this a little bit before we started recording, what I see often in the community is a, is a, diluted, um, a diluted sense of you know, the yoga teachings as being about just being joyful or harmonious or happy. And so what I see sometimes when, when one encounters this profound violence that's happening in the world, then there's this compulsion to kind of shy away from that because we don't know how to reconcile that violence with, uh, with, with this idea we have about yoga being you know, just about being happy or harmonious because, you know, how could you be harmonious about this? It's so devastating. And, and so the response then is, uh, or the reaction is to not think about it, right? Which, you know, is of course maybe an issue that we have in general in American culture, I would say. So with regards to something like Syria, what is the responsibility, if you see any, what's the responsibility responsibility or how, in your view, should yogis respond to events or situations like this? Well, um, in, embedded in your question, the idea of response uh, requires or implies action. And one thing I wanted to say is that inaction can be action. Inaction is action. Now, it could be conscious inaction or unconscious inaction. And not wanting to deal with something is often unconscious. It's like suppressing something, as I mentioned earlier, into the bottom, bottom drawer because of the, you know, not being capable of dealing with it or thinking that it's going to disturb what Master Patanjali speaks about, chitta prasadanam, mm-hmm. which is a, a blessed or a serene state of mind, which is what the concept of shanti is. And shanti is peace. It's loosely translated as peace, but we don't really have a word for for shanti in English. But it's um, is the kind of peace or serenity that is not dependent on external circumstances. Right. So you could still be walking through a checkpoint or a war zone or watching devastating events on TV and maintain that serenity of mind because you understand that it's being you can project it out from the inside and so I think you know yogis have all the way from to the since the beginning of time yogis have been political beings mm-hmm. they're very much concerned about their environment um, uh, how they live and uh, where they live and I think it's no difference nowadays like we live in the world and if you're watching something that might seem very remote to where we live right now, it's still happening in our world. And I mean, the ways the yogi can can respond is, uh, there's a myriad of ways, but um, uh, denying denying that it's happening or not wanting to deal with it, not wanting to read the newspaper. I mean, I have that often, like coming Mm -hmm. from Beirut, just like the last thing I want to know is what's next, what's, what's going on. But doesn't mean that it's not happening. Right. And, um, you know, you're, we're immersed in the world. And so um, 
first thing I would say is recognizing that the microcosm and the macrocosm are one, that if mm. it's happening in our world, um, a seed must have planted it, had been planted in our mind for us to even be exposed to it. Yeah. And to consider how, uh, where, where there is violence in, in our own lives, you know, it could be in speech, it could be in the way we, you know, someone hits you when you're walking down the streets of New York. I mean, I see myself, someone elbows me by mistake and I give them the look, that's violence. Someone takes a cab away from you while you've been standing there for 10 minutes and you, you know, you just give them the look or curse them or whatever, that's violence. And all these things are, I think, interrelated. Now, I mentioned the word shanti, and again, it's loosely used and translated, but, you know, yogis recognize the power of thoughts. And um, if we believe in that power and, and, and others being receptive to those thoughts, I mean, we spoke about chanting a lot, uh, chanting the name of the divine or... Uh, um, that alone that like, can focus on our mind and purify our speech in such a way that we can send vibrations into the world, whether through chanting, through meditating, through practicing, through, I mean, I'm going to say it, through how we eat affects the earth, affects, you know, it's how we eat is contributing, can contribute to peace or violence in the world. And so there's a myriad of ways of how we can respond, but... Um, we spoke, you and I, earlier off record about, you know, Syria specifically and Iraq. What's going on in the Middle East? And, um, you know, the idea of people being kicked out from their own country. And I am privy to that because my country or where I come from, where I grew up, Lebanon, is a very small country, tiny. There's four and a half Leban million Lebanese. There are more Lebanese abroad than in the country, but then we have two million refugees, Syrian refugees. So you can imagine the population expanded from four and a half million to six and a half million, but there's not enough water, food, uh, electricity to sustain all these people. And I think um, there are so many countries in the Arab world alone that are so rich and have so much land, and they could, you know, welcome a lot of these, you know, refugees into their land the way Germany and Sweden and are doing. So um, opening up, <laughs> opening up, you know, we in the face of adversity, in the face of suffering, we're so quick at closing. We're bending walls, guarding ourselves, like thinking me, 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 me. Can we open when the world pushes us to close? Yeah. And I'm saying when I say open, opening you know, borders, opening our minds, opening our perspective, opening up uh, our capacity to welcome others energetically and physically um, and mentally. And so I think it's, it's a practice to remain open is a practice and it's a political practice. I think that's so amazing. I love the way you, um, you put, you know, practice of opening when the world pushes you to close. I think that's such a powerful kind of um, notion. And, and when you were talking about the yogi as being immersed in the world, it made me think of, of you know, often the archetype of the yogi that we kind of see or, or traditionally have, we've thought about is, is this idea of the yogi kind of meditating on the mountain, uh, you know, cut off from the world. And, and so to me that also, there's also something about that image that seems to 
kind of push us to isolate sometimes. Like that's definitely within the tradition. But you seem to be talking about a very different, more modern, you know, um, uh, uh, not out of tune with that, but but really, uh, you know, obviously this this. Um, this archetype of the yogi was also a yogi that was in a in a certain historical time within a certain cultural context, and we're not in that context. We're not in that context, and I do think that even Lord Shiva, who is depicted as sitting on the top of the mountain, uh, could could hear and feel the suffering of of the beings that were living at the bottom of the mountain, and um, you know. You could take time for yourself and for your practice, but that doesn't mean that that will, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the more you practice, the more compassion you will uh, generate. And there is this other story. Just I know I just thought about it, but the Valmiki, who wrote the Ramayana, he had been meditating for thousands of years, so much so that he was covered by an anthill. And Sita, after she was exiled from the kingdom, she was pregnant uh, from Lord Rama. She came by the river, and she was so distraught and desperate, about to commit suicide, really. And Valmiki, underneath that anthill, after being having meditated for thousands of years, was able to hear the cries of Sita and came out of his meditation to take care of her. And so, yes, they were placed in context, but there are also stories of, you know, sadakas who all they wanted was be left alone, but when they heard the cry of another being, their compassion got them out of the, their meditative state and back into the world. And it, that's the concept, I think, of the bodhisattva who realizes that awakening is could be very lonely if you haven't taken everybody else with you. So... Yeah, um, there is, I mean, even inaction is action, and um, something has brought us into this world, our karmas, and to resolve those karmas, we have to do it in the world and in relationship to others, which I think is kind of the fastest way of doing it. So, Wow, that's really beautiful, and thank you for sharing that story, because it... Uh I think that's a really, you know, to me, that's really the way that I feel about this practice is that it's a call to be as present as possible. And that includes, you know, being able to respond to whatever way consciously to what's happening in the world and, and not, and not, you know, to, to isolate ourselves, which it's easy to do. You know, it's, it's easy to sit sometimes in meditation and want to put our earplugs in and try to drown everything out. You know, sometimes we want to go there, but, but the challenge and the practice is, you know, how can we show up? Like you were saying, how can we cultivate the serenity even amidst the turmoil? And really it's like that word porous. It's like, I think, you know, even if you think by putting earplugs on that, the, you know, you, you, you end up hardening instead of becoming more porous, which I think it's what the practice, like you said, calls, calls, calls for is like becoming more porous. Yeah. Wow. I like that, porous. Wow, this has been so wonderful, Rima. Uh, I just have a couple um, more questions I want to ask you. Um, one is just, you know, um, w what's going on with you right now and, and where can people find you? Where can people take your class? And, and what other projects do you have going on, if any? 
Okay, so uh, I teach at Jiva Mukti Tuesday through Saturday. I've been teaching the same schedule for almost nine years. Um, I love teaching that method. Um, I see, I see the same students on average three or four times a week, which is such a delight for me. I um, I sub at Kula Yoga Project from time to time. At least for now, uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm actually going to be teaching. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll, become, I'll be on the schedule later on, I don't know. But I'm also going to start, uh, I believe it's going to be the first, week, first Sunday of every month, teaching a steamy sunset one hour and 15 minute class at IMU studio. My dear friend, uh, Lauren Parato, has created, yeah. She's yeah, we cre- both did Conquering Lion. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you did? oh, I didn't realize you did Conquering That's just training you've taken. Oh, wow. Oh, no wonder you're like so immersed in like those Buddhist teachings too. Now it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we didn't have any choice but to be immersed. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. Of course. Yeah, I've known Kelly for years. Um, Yeah, so uh, Lauren has asked me, you know, to teach there for quite some time. And we just came up with this concept. And because of my schedule, I can't, you know, teach every Sunday. But uh, we're going to start with one Sunday a month. Uh, I'm not sure. It's going to be probably around 5, 5.15, Sunsets, steamy sunsets, and um, on Sundays, on Sundays, the first Sunday of every month. I believe that's not, yeah, I think that's going to be the date. And um, I've been working on my website for like a century, and it's called Souk of Rima. And, um, you know, the concept is not completely crystallized, but the idea of Souk is, I think, beautiful. In, uh, since we've been talking about the Middle East, traditionally, Souk is a center place um, where people come together and put aside their tribal differences and their religious differences and their social differences and, and, and gather to exchange traditionally goods, but it's a meeting point. And in Sanskrit, and Sanskrit suk, S-U-K-H, suk, if you were to translate it or write it in English letters, um, means um, centered in joy, at ease, so this idea of being in the center of something that is spacious and comfortable and solid, solid as strong. And so Sukha Vrima is a virtual platform, but it will also extend to a more, less virtual platform where um, we come together to exchange uh, uh, goods, information, energy, and... Um, and products eventually. So it'll be basically, it's, my, it's, my, it's nothing special about this website other than it being um, my first online presence. And um, I'll share my playlist on it, maybe certain quotes from my classes, my schedule, but also it's a launchpad for hopefully uh, actual events that I will do, um, not virtually. Yeah, but uh, that sounds great. Yeah. Will you just spell the website so the listeners? Sukavrima, yes, please. Thank you. S O U K O F R I M A dot com. Sukavrima dot com. Okay, great. It's a good question because Suk could be written different ways. Yeah, in, yeah. In I was English. I was listening and I was thinking. I mean, it could be, be literally my, my. It could be rimayoga.com. It just happened to be Sukavrima because I love the idea of a Suk. Yeah. So no, that's really powerful. I love that. Um, it's not an informational or. Um, website the way yours is five tattvas which i you know i want to plug in your website which i think is fantastic and uh the idea of sharing these teachings um in a way that is accessible is so 
wonderful and thank you thank you thank you you're doing it for students and teachers of yoga it's absolutely thank wonderful. you so much yeah i mean my, that's just my hope is to because i just feel like as we were talking about earlier you know the the teachings are being shirked a lot and we see a lot of you know there's a lot of beautiful yoga lifestyle blogs but you know there's the depth of the tradition is is not very well represented in in yeah. in in my perception so it's really about you know prioritizing that depth and giving people an opportunity to see that to go that deep doesn't have to be a hyper abstracted thing you know we definitely have some writers of course writing on some concepts on the website that are challenging but always in a way hopefully at least you know it's my intention that it's always in a way that people can really sink their teeth into and, and start to see how they might apply that to their their own practice so so i'm really happy that you like it yeah i really i really like it thank you yeah, so, okay, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the things that I'm offering to, uh, uh, I call them the Tatva tribe, which is, you know, the community of people we have on our website, is what I call the Embodied Philosophers Library, and it's basically an annotated bibliography of yoga philosophy and wisdom books. And, you know, annotated bibliography just means, for those who don't know what that means, it it's, uh, it provides a summary of the book, so you can kind of you can you know you can read it, and you don't just get the title and the author, but you also get a, a short summary of what the book's about, so you have it more information about whether or not you might want to read it. So I've made it the, at this point; it's about twelve pages long, and and it, eventually it will be much longer because I'm asking everybody who I've been interviewing if they could you know please offer or mention two or three books that we could maybe put into that library and share with others. So what would those uh, two or three books be for you, Rima? Yes, absolutely. I'm just not going to go as traditional as probably I would have suggested, the books that I would have suggested at teacher training, the Jivamukti teacher training, which some of them are compulsory, which I can share with you as well. But the books that come to mind is, um, one, it's called Death Must Die, and that book changed my life. It's uh, the autobiography of a, it's like a journal of Atmananda who was one of the devotees of Ananda Maima so it's a journal so you don't have it's huge it's like 900 pages but because it's a journal you can read you know like one day at a time like her you know her entries the daily entry at a time you don't have to read the whole book but to me what um, that book uh, got me to think about is like the struggles of a practitioner or the challenges like you asked um, whether you're a sannyasi, someone who's, you know, who's taken certain vows, or someone like you and I, um, you know, the struggles are the same. Like we spoke about anger, Atmananda really like had to deal with anger and her relationship with her, the guru that she found. She used to be a student of Krishna Murti at first, and so it's a beautiful like I, I love. And actually, that book got me to visit Ananda Maima's ashram in Haridwar, northern India. I went because I had read that book. It's it's amazing. And Death Must Die, it's really the death of the ego. So that's one book. Another book, I mean, any book from Pema Children, I think, is... <laughs> she's perhaps one of the most influential teachers in my life. Uh, we, have when, we have When Things Fall Apart yes. on, that, on that list. Yeah, that? yeah, actually, well, the first book she's written is um, uh, The Wisdom of No Escape, which is brilliant. Like, uh, And then she has also... Um, no Time to Lose, which is, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate that because of your training. It's her, it's Master Shanti, her commentary on Master Shantideva's verse, Bodhisattva, the way of the Bodhisattva text, 
as it relates to the kleshas or the mental afflictions. And so she goes verse by verse. It's amazing. And so it's, I would say, no time to lose. And her last book is really small. It's come, it says, a fail, fail, and fail better again. That's the name of it? Yeah. Fail, fail. Fail, fail. No, fail, fail, and fail better again. It's about failure. Yeah. And she's so hip and such a rock star and so wise. Like she gives, like she mentions Beyonce's video in that book. I mean, we're talking about uh, um, Pretty Hurts. But the idea of, um, of, of, of um, that, like, allowing ourselves to feel that we're suffering, like, we're, 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 we're in pain, like, the idea is, you know, it's like, we're hurting, you're hurting, that's all, like, stay with that feeling. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much, Rima. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I think we've covered some really beautiful topics, and thank you just so much for, for opening up your heart for this podcast. Uh, I can't wait to go to your class again soon. Yeah, I can't wait to have you. You're, you know, you just um, thank you for making, putting me in such ease, like making me feel at home with you and uh, allowing me to speak in a way that is just natural. It's really, it's, they say that, um, uh, they say that, that when someone is speaking, they, they give the best teachings when someone else, when they're, the other person is listening. And so it's really a mutual, um, it's a mutual thing, right? And uh, communication is mutual. It's a mutual thing. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah, thank you. We'll see you soon. Yes, ciao. Bye. Hello again. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rima Rabat. Again, you can find out more about Rima at jivamuktiyoga.nyc and also the website she mentioned, sukhavrima.com. That's S-O-U-K-O-F-R-I-M-A.com.